This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Right now, we want to talk about something that is a bit of a concern among young people, but it has nothing to do with education necessarily in a classroom, although this topic would come up in health class. It is the rates of STIs, formerly known, I think, as STDs, but now we've we've kind of gone with the STI in all of this, sexually transmitted infection instead of sexually transmitted disease. So... If we look at the rates, they are, according to the Middlesex London Health Unit, a cause for concern. Well, that's not good. We don't want a cause for concern. And something is being done tomorrow that we're going to talk about. But to talk about the rates as a whole, please welcome Shia Dinsa, who's the manager of the sexual health promotion team with the Middlesex London Health Unit. Shia, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's kind of dig into this because I'm kind of going right from the release, which says local rates of sexually transmitted infections are cause for concern. How do you read what is a cause for concern? Well, I think right now is that the rates, um, you know, particularly chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis, those are the bacterial STIs we're focusing on, um, they continue to increase. Um, and there's, you know, it's causing more of a concern. Um, you know, they've, we've had some higher rates in the province um, for the last several years for chlamydia, but now we're seeing the increasing rates in gonorrhea and syphilis. So it's, it's actually more concerning to us um, because there's not been a, a change or a reduction. Some of us have gone a long time without being in a health class, and some of us have also gone a long time being in a monogamous relationship, so STIs aren't really a thing that we always think about. So can we remind ourselves as to how things like the the infections, gonorrhea, syphilis, how those are transmitted? Um, so primarily one of the things, um, you know, we are developing a campaign because we do feel it's important to continue to educate the, the public as well as target the population where we are seeing the increased rates. So one of the, the, the pieces that we're, we're proposing is increased condom use because bacterial STIs, if, if there's condoms used, um, do not, uh, transmit. Um, and again, uh, w- we're also seeing it through um, not as often, but you can get uh, uh, an, an STI through oral sex as well. So just encouraging people to use condoms is definitely important, but then also encouraging testing. So if you actually have a, a sexually transmitted infection, that you can be tested and treated. So that is, you know, there is great news is that STIs can be treated if someone is aware that they have an STI. If you're unaware and you're having unprotected sexual contact, then you're spreading the STI unknowingly, which then increases STIs in the community, particularly if you have more than one partner. We are talking with Shia Dinsa from the Middlesex Health and or Health Unit. Uh, Shia is the manager of the sexual health promotion team, and we're looking at STIs, which have levels in this area that are a quote cause for concern. And condom use is big, but you mentioned testing, and this is something that maybe people look at and say, "Ooh, a test." I I don't know if I want to go in for a test. But if you don't get tested and you do have an STI, what can some of the outcomes be? 
So the other thing is if it's left untreated, uh, one is that it, you know, it can spread to other individuals if you're having unprotected sex, but the other um, is that there can be further complications. So, you know, an STI can be symptomatic or it can be unsymptomatic. So that's why it's important that if you, you know, you're getting a new partner um, or into a new relationship, it's important to be tested because you may not have symptoms. And it can lead to, um, for example, infertility would be an example um, if you have a, an untreated STI for a prolonged period of time. Um, you know, and, and I think the other piece is there's stigma sometimes associated with if I'm getting tested, um, you know, that means I've had multiple partners and, and definitely have an STI. It's just a great way to just check if you have an STI because you may not know. And, you know, we have an event tomorrow at Get Tested Western, working with Western University um, student health, uh, student services, um, and it's extremely important that we're minimizing um, the uh, stigma around uh, testing. So it's as easy as peeing in a cup. That's been a campaign we've had before. But then once people realize, you know what, actually, you know, I've, I've provided a urine sample and, um, and then I can get my test result back, that maybe then they'll feel more comfortable attending, you know, their family practitioner, um, a walk-in clinic or the sexual health clinic for testing when they are, um, if they are changing relationships or they've, um, a condom has broke or they have not used condoms. Great way to take away the stigma, too. Now, it's happening at Western. Is it only for Western students, or could other people go and attend? Uh, currently, I mean, we don't check any student ID, but currently it is a focus of Western students um, because the target population typically is between 18 to 24. That is where we are seeing the highest rates of chlamydia and gonorrhea. But we also have had events at um, Fanshawe College. And then we also, um, that's why we're also developing a campaign is because there's people that we need to ensure are aware of the same message and then they can, they can get tested um, here at the health unit, um, which is a drop-in clinic. Shia Dinsa joining us, manager of the sexual health promotion team of the Middlesex London Health Unit. As we talk about a test opportunity tomorrow, get tested, which is happening at Western and is happening between 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. Sometimes questions come up as to whether or not you can transmit a sexual or STI, sexually transmitted infection, in other ways. It would, would drug use ever factor into this? Um, we, you know, when we're not talking about bacterial STI, so there are other sexually transmitted infections, um, such as HIV, which, um, that can be transmitted through sharing of drug, uh, use equipment, um, is one way of, of transmitting, yes. Okay, but not necessarily for things like gonorrhea or syphilis or things like that? No, that's primarily through sexual contact. Excellent. And do we even use STD anymore? Is that still a thing or is it now all under the umbrella of STI? It's now under, yeah, the umbrella of STIs. Okay. Just wanted to clarify that because <laughs> we all remember the old STD days and you think, was this the same thing? It is the same thing. Yes, that's right. Shia, you're the best. Thank you so much for all the information. All right. Thank you. That is Shia Dinsa, manager of the sexual health promotion team with the Middlesex London Health Unit. So there's that thing, cause for concern, and it's simply, it's, it's one of those education things where, you know... Unless you've got something that says to you, yeah, I, th I think I should get this checked out, uh, you're not necessarily going to do that. And sometimes even if it's mm, 
what's that? You're not necessarily going to do it, especially as a young person. So uh, we're at the point where, you know, if, if you have a young person in your family, do you flip them a little text saying, hey, get, there's a, there's a uh, thing tomorrow. It's called get tested. You just, I'll just leave that here. There you go. There, there you go. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure how to do that. But hey, if you are between the ages of 15 and 24 and listening to London Live right now, you are able to go and get a free test. Here's a question we haven't been able to dig into yet. It is whether or not the Vancouver 2010 games, I always like to look at what we would have in a textbook years from now. And I know the textbooks are now basically downloadable PDFs, but let's just call them textbooks because that's what a lot of us picture. What we would have in a textbook years from now. I can remember in school taking a course that actually had something uh, that was, I don't know if it was a full chapter, but it's been a paragraph. But it dealt with something in history that had happened like a year before. So they had, the textbook was roughly a year old, and they had written in a little something right toward the end of it that was a summation of something that had happened in the world just like yesterday by the time they wrote this. Now, it, it was it was an important piece of history, you know, <laughs> God help me if I can remember what it was right now, but I only remember two things from my history degree. Minamoto no Yoritomo, and I've forgotten the other thing. So I'm down to one. I only remember one thing from getting a degree in history in school. But I do remember this moment, and I always like to look back and say, okay, well, what are we going to remember about certain things years from now? What will be in those textbooks? One great fun game to play is Donald Trump. What are we going to remember? Disaster? Brilliance? Somewhere in between? Neither? I, I have no idea. No idea what will come of this particular time in U.S. history. Because we haven't had time to really look back at George W. Bush, which was kind of a crazy time as well. And he was a very unique leader. You had a frat guy as a leader. Now you've got her, I guess, the as... <laughs> Who was it that was describing it this way? I think it was Bill Simmons was describing Rob Gronkowski as being the guy on your floor in college or university who was naked at 3 in the morning. But you love that guy. That's, he's hilarious, that guy. So the U.S. has already had that guy as a president. And now they've got, do you call him a business tycoon? Not really. He kind of handles things from a business perspective. So looking back at Donald Trump will be fascinating. The thing from a Canadian perspective to look back at will be the 2010 Vancouver Olympics. Because I really believe this was a turning point in making Canada what it will be. Maybe even not what we are right now, but what we will be. Why is that? Well, before 2010, it's hard to remember, but we've had kind of a stereotype as Canadians. What would you say is a stereotype? When you meet someone and you ask them about Canadians, what do they always say? Well, they're very polite. Okay, good, good. They'll hold doors for people. Excellent. We want that. If we're traveling abroad, we want to be behaving nicely. We want to be known as nice people, polite people. We say our pleases. We say our thank yous. We'll take that. But in the same way, if you're being like that, you can be kind of a, a pushover. Or you can be somebody who, you know, is, is really too polite to toot your own horn. 
And I really believe before the Vancouver 2010 games, being a proud Canadian was a thing you kept to yourself. And Vancouver 2010 changed that. All of a sudden, being a proud Canadian was an important thing to profess. You had to get that out there. This is a damn good country. And I love it. And I don't care who knows it. You could stand on the top of a Rocky Mountain if you wanted to, but you didn't have to. But that attitude became okay. Because up to that point, sure, we had been a part of some pretty important things in history. But we hadn't really had a moment where we could say, we owned this. And Vancouver was that. And today is the 10th anniversary of the beginning of those games. The lighting of the torch. February 12th, 2010. And things will continue and then they'll, they're lighting the torch right now in Vancouver. They've lit it by now. They've, they've had a lot of time. And they'll be relighting it on February the 22nd, I believe, as part of another celebration. But if you go into those games, there was still a lot of uncertainty. One of the things that a lot of Olympic organizers were criticizing about Vancouver was the lack of, hey, we're hosting Olympic games. You just didn't see that everywhere. It had been there, but because Vancouver is a place where people are not afraid to stand up and protest, as we're seeing again now, you had all of the banners and stuff that were being put up. They were being vandalized by people who did not like what the game stood for, who did not like you know, any part of it, or were just using that in order to try and push forward their own agenda. So you had a lot of vandalism going in. You had a lot of people who weren't too happy about Vancouver bringing in the games because Olympic Games cost a lot of money to put on. And I'm not a a big fan of that aspect either. And then you actually had a tragedy to kick off the games. Think back to it. Think back to Nodar Kumaritsvili. Do you remember him? He was the loser from Georgia, not Georgia in the United States, but the country, and he was killed in a training run. So immediately going in, it was, is this Olympics even safe? Do we have a really dangerous luge and bobsled course? Is this going to happen again? So there were a lot of negatives going in. But then all of a sudden, this red and white surge started to grow. And it grew with success on the Mogul's Hill. And then it continued. And you had Scott Moyer and Tessa Virtue. And you, you had so many different amazing stories. Uh, Mercedes Nickel, Jennifer Heil. You had so many. And it culminated in Canada beating the United States in men's hockey in a game in which I think the estimates were over 20 million people in this country of at that point, I think we were about 31, 33 million. Watched the game and watched Canada win. And Canada finished with more gold medals than any other country at that games. We won the games. Didn't have the most medals. The United States still had 37 total. But Canada had the most gold medals. We won that games. And I think we're going to look back on that in our history and say, that is where it became okay to be a proud Canadian. Because before that, you could be, but you had to keep it to yourself. Now, I hope it still is, and I hope it remains this way out in the open.
We have an opportunity right now to talk about numbers, but low numbers. Very low numbers. Greatly low numbers. The numbers at the pumps here in London, Ontario. They've been low for a while. And it's really interesting to see them drop down as low as they have been. You've probably been able to happily pull up and fill up, if you're there at the right time of day, for less than a dollar a liter. When was the time that we thought that would ever happen? Well, let's check in on how this is happening. Dan McTagg is the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy and is a gas and energy analyst. So he breaks this stuff down. And Dan, maybe you can talk about what's going into these low numbers to start things off. There is a lot of concern globally about uh, China. Uh, Demand has dropped there, the coronavirus or whatever they're calling it now. Uh, has really uh, created an expectation that the demand for uh, not just oil, but gasoline and other diesel products will continue to decline until, of course, the situation there uh, stabilizes. So for now, we're in a bit of a sweet spot in the sense that uh, although we start in the morning at, say, you know, here in London, at $1.10.9, usually by the evening, as you quite rightly pointed out, uh, we're down to under a dollar a litre. That's because it costs most gas stations about 98 to 99 cents a litre on a day like today in the London market to buy their fuel taxes in. So by evening, they probably made enough to just cover what it takes to uh, turn on their pumps, pay their staff, and of course, uh, honor credit cards. They can compete with uh, some of the big box uh, and other uh, d- deep discount uh, players in the market. And we're seeing, we're still seeing a lot of that, not just here in London. It was a real problem about three weeks ago in Hamilton. Uh, and, of course, uh, we've seen other markets where prices are at or below cost. Uh, it's also a time of season when refiners are liquidating product because they uh, need to make way for summer gasoline, which starts on April 1st. And, of course, demand isn't exactly uh, stellar in these uh, early months of the new year. And isn't that interesting? And also interesting that the number of things that can affect world prices of oil or certainly can affect the price of the pumps seems to be ever increasing when we can tie in the new coronavirus old COVID-19 to this that's that's pretty remarkable well it is uh and gasoline prices uh, that we see here are related to uh, much wider markets the first big one isn't here in Ontario it's actually the New York uh, Mercantile Exchange which is where trades on futures for gasoline, the anticipation of supply and demand really takes uh, takes shape. Uh, now, of course, I note that today there is a bit of a rally in the market, so we could see wholesale prices move up uh, by uh, this Friday, um, meaning you know, we may not be able to see many more of those stations unless they're willing to sell gasoline below cost, go below a dollar a litre. So really, uh, we may be looking at a bit of a pent-up market, uh, usually after the middle of the month of February, you start to look into the springtime months uh, for fuel, and the outlook tends to be a little bit more bullish for uh, for, for prices. Uh, right now, nothing to panic about. We're going to remain pretty much in this area for the next week or two. But at some stage and at some point as we march towards April, uh, then you're going to start to see prices move up one because of the federal government's uh, imposition of yet another increase of about 2.3 cents a litre net and permanently for its carbon tax, uh, about 3 cents for diesel, and of course on April 15th, 4 to 5 cents a litre for the summer blends of gasoline. That's coming, uh, and it means that uh, you know under a dollar a litre is less and less likely, unless of course the 
global implications uh, of uh, this virus uh, continue to plague the uh, dominate and dominate the market with respects to uh, drops in demand as a result of no economic activity. Gas analyst Dan McTagg joining us on London Live. Dan, if we were to go back five years ago, we didn't necessarily know what to expect with a lot of carbon pricing being talked about, things like that. And the idea was some people would throw out there, you know, we're going to be a lot like the UK where they're about two bucks a liter or we're at least going to be a dollar fifty a liter. Should it be surprising to us that at any point during our year we get down around a dollar? Very surprising if you consider that uh, uh, with government's adding more taxes, and of course HST, such a tax on tax that we're this low. Uh, but it may very well be just a false lull in the market. As I said, uh, were it not for uh, the situation unfolding uh, in China, it's likely that we'd be probably paying 5 to 10 cents a litre more. And to put that in perspective, if you look that uh, you know uh, the price of oil uh, was in fact trading below $50 a barrel yesterday for uh, West Texas Intermediate, if you go back really to the beginning of uh, the month of uh, January, not even that far back, uh, oil was still trading in the 50, uh, sorry, at the beginning of the January, trading for about 13 to $14 a barrel more. So you extrapolate that over, that's about a 10 cent differential. And that's really the grand effect of what has happened. The coronavirus uh, has really had that implication and that impact on uh, futures for both oil and for gasoline. So we're in a bit of a, you know, we're in a bit of a magic position now where prices are lower than expected, uh, but they won't last forever. And I suspect that uh, with uh, markets getting back on track, this uh, perhaps this virus stabilizing, uh, and the world economy getting back into uh, the swing of things and higher demand, we're likely to see prices here in London move well above the dollar ten to dollar fifteen range as we race towards uh, the first days of April. Dan McTagg with us on London Live, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Dan, you mentioned looking at the mercantile, looking at world markets to help establish prices at our pumps. How about protests on our own home soil? Could those have an effect? Well, the supply of oil and gasoline tends to be largely by pipeline for us here in Ontario. Uh, But make no mistake, uh, if there is a greater interruption of fuel supplies uh, through the CN uh, corridor, Uh, That could have implications, especially for eastern parts, that is east of Belleville, uh, because a lot of their gasoline is, in fact, coming from Sarnia uh, and uh, some of it by rail. So that could have an implication for them in terms of supply. Uh, Something like this is not anything to take for granted, uh, simply because when we saw the CN strike back November, December, eight days shed about a quarter of the entire country's GDP. So it's a very serious matter uh, when you start seeing... uh, not just passenger transport, but also, more importantly, commercial movements of things like uh, liquids, petroleum products, and others affected uh, in, in, in a very unexpected and lengthy way. These things could have uh, you know, implications for the economy here in Ontario uh, if they are drawn out and uh, last much longer. Dan, thanks for the time. Thanks for the update. That is Dan McTagg as we talk about gas prices, energy prices, and more. And as Dan says, he's the president of Canadians for Affordable energy you've been listening to the london live podcast catch the show live on weekdays from one to three 